From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Just a few years ago, researchers from the University of Washington set up a test with children from Seattle who were about seven years old. They gave the kids two buttons, one that the children should push when they saw a boy thing and one that they should push when they saw a girl thing. This sort of experiment is sometimes called an implicit bias test, and it did indeed reveal deep gender-based biases. When these kids would see an image of a number, they were far more likely to push the boy button. Boys and girls did this at about the same rate, and the researchers estimated that about 75% of these children had already developed an implicit bias that math isn't for girls as much as it is for boys. There have actually been lots of research experiments on this subject, and pretty much all of them confirm both the existence and lasting power of these sorts of stereotypes. And this helps explain why women make up a little more than half of all college students, but only right now about 19% of the students who are enrolled in engineering and technology and only about 18% of those studying computing. My guest today is trying to change that. Rija JN is an associate professor in mechanical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, where her lab explores the ways in which electromagnetic fields can help in the process of synthesizing materials that up to this point have been considered to be impossible to create. She also works alongside researchers in the departments of material science and engineering, chemical engineering, and electrical and computer engineering. But back when she was in elementary school, she also thought that she was bad at math. It took an unconventional path to get her to where she is today, and she shared that journey as the author of a chapter in a recently published book about women in mechanical engineering, which is called, appropriately enough, Women in Mechanical Engineering. Rija JM, welcome. Thank you, Matthew. It's an honor to be here. To set up the rest of this conversation, I really wanted to talk about some of the amazing things that are coming out of your lab and your research. And one of those things is a technique that uses liquid metal to create soft and flexible circuits. Can you talk about this technique and and also what its applications are? Sure. Happy to talk about that fun project. I must mention that um, Carnegie Mellon is a very interdisciplinary place. So um, I, over my PhD, made materials that go into batteries, lithium-ion batteries, like the ones that we are familiar with in our phones and laptops and whatnot. And my colleague in my department, Professor Kamal Majidi, uh, developed this liquid metal alloy that is sort of pioneering this world of flexible devices and electronics. And one of the amazing aspects of being at Carnegie Mellon is that you run into people with strong skills and the interest to try new things. And that's how this um, soft and stretchable battery idea was born. And it took two amazing students, a PhD student and a master's student, to realize it in practice. 
Um, if you think about the battery that you're holding in your hand now, perhaps for your phone, it's comprised of really rigid materials, metals and ceramics, and, and they don't stretch or flex in any way. What we had to do was to come up with a new battery architecture where we had this liquid metal. It's basically a combination of metals that melts at a lower temperature when you mix them compared to when they are separate metals. In this particular case, it's the metal gallium and indium. So with this new architecture, we could create a conventional battery with the main difference that it can be stretched and flexed and it doesn't break and it can very easily be integrated with other surfaces, including soft materials like our skin. Where do you see this technology being applied in the future? This is this is fascinating. So we need power to drive many devices. Uh, for instance, um, you know, you could think about implants that are on the surface of the body um, or sensors which are monitoring your vitals, for instance, or monitoring other aspects of your bodily functions. In terms of implants, you might need um, a battery to power uh, a device that go into your heart, for instance, right? And these days, we are talking about robots and soft robots that are, are, are sort of seamlessly integrated into our lives. In all these cases, we need new batteries which are not only soft and flexible and stretchable like the ones in the paper, but we also need the ability to scale down batteries. If you think about batteries these days, we're always talking about electric cars and large, large batteries, um, but we also need the ability to scale them down and apply them to these new surfaces like the human body, for instance, with um, unique architectures, materials, and form factors. You also fairly recently published a paper describing techniques that can be used to impact the physical processes of transition between one state of a medium and another, and and the evolution of the microscale structure of certain materials, or maybe in other words, you've described how electromagnetic fields could be used to synthesize ceramics in new ways, which may have some pretty profound impacts, especially in reducing the carbon footprint of these materials. Talk, talk about why it's important to learn new ways to synthesize ceramics in different formations than we currently do. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we talk a lot about, you know, the, the climate change issue and the need to decarbonize, uh, for instance, the transportation industry. And that's why we talk a lot about electric cars um, and batteries for electric cars and so on. Um, about 30 percent of global emissions actually come from industrial heating. You know, and that's heating for everything from what we you know run our homes to materials and chemicals that we need in our daily lives. In my group, we are trying to tackle that last part. Some materials, especially materials like ceramics, which go into electronics, um, tooling, um, transportation, and many sectors, they are very energy intensive to produce. And 
extremely, extremely polluting processes are used to, to make them. And one of the reasons is that these materials have very strong bonds between their atoms. And to create those bonds and you know, essentially realize these materials in nature, you need to pump a lot of energy. And we do that by heating these systems in a furnace at temperatures exceeding 2000 degrees Celsius, um, you know, pause for, for effect, um, for something on the order of 20 hours or more. And you can imagine the energy cost and more importantly, the environmental cost, the toxic gases that will come out from the process. Our whole concept is that we can intensify these processes by applying the heat differently. In this case, we are applying the heat using microwave sources. And so you do the same cooking of these materials at a, a lower temperature for a short period of time, just because of the way that energy is applied. And one example is cooking in the microwave. Um, you can um, you can cook something like rice on the stovetop and do it in the microwave. And one, the microwave process is extremely fast and um, can take less energy. So that's the basic principle. But fundamentally, what we are trying to do is that there's a frequency of the microwave radiation that couples directly to the bonds in the materials that we are trying to cook or make. And that helps us waste less energy in the form of heat and thereby create a sustainable process. Okay, so we've got liquid metal for batteries. We've got, you know, changing the energy demands of creating ceramics and the properties of the ceramics. And just just a kind of emphasize the diversity of your interests. Let's do one more. Back in 2017, you started teaching principles of engineering using the video game Minecraft. I'd love to hear more about this. The idea is whether you're a student or an, you know, a, a young student or an older adult student, everybody learns better when they are having fun and this application of what is called game-based learning is it was common in k-12 through education around the time i started looking into this which was the early 2016-2017 but there were not many examples of implementing them in the curriculum um, in the engineering curriculum um, at at a you know at a university level, and and that was the 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 seed of the idea. And Minecraft is the builder's game. You know, um, I don't know Matthew if you have played the game. In, I have watched my said. daughter play it many times. <laughs> yeah, so that middle school audience is, is exactly the right age group that um, takes to Minecraft very naturally. And it's a builder's game. You can build entire worlds and universes beginning as uh, a novice and, you know, in a week, right? It's it's a game where I think people learn concepts through osmosis. So in my materials, science and engineering world that I just described to you, 
we are trying to understand what are called process structure property relationship. Basically, what that means is when you do a process, say heating, conventionally versus with a microwave, you change the arrangement of atoms in a material. That's what we call structure. So this triangle, uh, which we call the process structure property relationship, is it's easier to learn some of these concepts, especially the arrangement, the three-dimensional arrangement of atoms, in um, in sort of a in a game as opposed to you know drawing this out on two-dimensional you know paper or a, or a, a learning board. So in my class, um, each block um, is is approximating an atom in this material world and students can walk around, interact with them and, and visualize these atoms and their arrangements in three dimension, almost like being inside this material or this crystal of a material. Of a material. And, and that, um, you know, um, you're still doing many of the math heavy concepts, in a, but in a much more fun way. Let's take a few steps back now and talk a little bit about your history as a student. Let's go way back because when you were a young kid, you really didn't like school all that much. In particular, you wrote that you really didn't think that you were very good at math and sometimes even got failing grades on your math tests. Yes, you're right, Matthew. I distinctly remember my zero in math. <laughs> You know, as a child, um, you don't remember many memories going back to your childhood. But I remember that. That's one of those things. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've also heard about other academics, um, you know, talk about how they eventually studied and thrived in a topic that they did not like growing up, whether it be math or chemistry or physics or even the arts in some cases. So for, for me, um, it, it all came down to, I believe, the way math was taught. Um, math is integral to all of us, right? So this whole concept that you must be very good at it, I think it creates a very intimidating environment and add on top of it the expectations the pressures introduced by testing, conventional testing, and many students um, like me would fall off that, um, you know, that vehicle um, and, and might um, completely decide that I'm not good at math. In those years that you were struggling in school, um, I know you were very interested in science fiction. So there was this period of time when your brain was developing that you weren't locked into academic science or engineering and math, but you were still learning to dream about the potential, the scientific potential for all of these different things. How important was that to the transformation that you were ultimately able to make to becoming this really good student and, and great learner? I think we should all dream, daydream. <laughs> it must uh, be mandatory, in, in my opinion, because um, our biggest achievements as humanity came when we dreamt of the impossible, right? And, and, um, 
And I guess these days we are all, you know, pressed for time, resources and everything that we feel like dedicating any time to think or, or, or relax or, or dream um, seem, seems like a luxury, but, you know, it should not be. And for me, um, I didn't do well in school, um, but I loved watching, um, you know, shows like Star Trek. <laughs> and at that time, my father, um, you know, was working in the Middle East and um, all the, the the animation reruns were in uh, translated into Arabic on the local TV channel. So somehow I was also learning in another language. <laughs> but just watching the people, you know, um, fly around in these spaceships and, you know, operate these microwave um, uh, uh, devices with which they can zap things into existence. Um, ironically, none of that is too far away now, right? We have starships landing autonomously, right, in Florida. We we have 3D printers that can zap anything we want to existence. And the, in fact, the the flexible battery idea, um, you know, it, it 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 is sort of a dream come true for me because um, I was fascinated by you know movies like Robocop. With the back in the day, we're talking about these shape changing, um, you know, systems and 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 robots. So um, dreams can become real, <laughs> and and even scientific, um, um, you know, scientific fiction can can become very real. So for me, when I was so, de- in a sense, depressed that I couldn't find identity in my classrooms, I turned to these TV shows and they kept me going and in a sense inspired me um, to to just be myself. Um, and I am still watching reruns <laughs> of these shows. What does it take now to get more women into the STEM field? Is it Having more women in popular culture who are uh, portrayed as scientists and engineers and mathematicians? Is it having more people like you who are just leading out by example and showing how much fun and how interesting uh, all of this work is? What What's your prescription? Um, that is a difficult question to answer because you're right representation matters and it matters a lot so we need a lot of women to enter these traditionally um, you know considered uh, fields that only men went into and science and engineering are one example so having more people help having more people senior in these fields in positions of power you know, at that table where decisions are made, um, that also matters. But that is also dependent on, you know, maintaining the pipeline of younger people to keep continuing and thriving and succeeding and getting into those decision-making tables, whether it's a university or um, a company or a startup. Um, But to do all that, we also need a lot of support, right, to retain um, these women and to prevent the so-called leaky pipeline problem, which is now being exacerbated by the effects of COVID. Um, and as a mother to two young children, I also understand the horrible, horrible uh, situation we are with, with childcare shortages. 
So it these are the minimal support we need, but beyond that, we need to address um, implicit bias. Um, we need to un- uh, address um, the need to create uh, welcoming spaces, um, a mentorship network, um, and, and, and so on. So the retention, um, the equity and inclusion aspects of this equation are still areas where we need to do a lot of work, um, in my opinion. And given that girls from an early age are often implicitly discouraged and sometimes explicitly discouraged from pursuing STEM studies, and so they get, you know, off path very early in life, how how important do you think it is for us to recognize all of the potential and in embracing students who come from more non-traditional or, as you say, non-linear paths toward their interest in science and technology and math? It is very important. And I've always felt that the way we do testing, whether it is at the K through 12 levels or even at higher levels in the university, um, we need to relook really at that, um, especially at the K through 12 stages, where, as you mentioned earlier, we are starting to formulate these biases. We are instilling in people if they are good at something or not. So, the ability to not only teach topics like science and math in, in such a way that is it is more inclusive and accepting of every type of learner in a classroom that is important but once they learn not everybody tests well so what are the ways in which we can understand uh, or evaluate the effectiveness of our teaching other than tests and in our uh, minecraft classroom we do have tests which students actually test inside Minecraft. It's a cool story for another day. But um, we also have projects. These are projects that account for a significant portion of the grade. And they they can be pretty broad, but the topic has to have a core seed related to material science, making of materials, characterizing of materials, or uh, putting materials into um, a device or something that is functional. And... In these projects, students don't really have a ticking clock and they're not under a lot of pressure. They have to do well and they get timely check-ins with me, the instructor, multiple milestones, the ability to fail and then go back and take that non-linear pathway that you, you mentioned, as opposed to always arriving at this perfect right answer. Um, so that's something I encourage them to do. Okay, it's okay to try this experiment. You may not work, but I'm not going to penalize you for that. But can you tell me why you think it wo- it did not work? And then can we build upon a new idea? That's how science works, right? We have a hypothesis. We design experiments to test out the hypothesis. Sometimes we find we are right. and Sometimes you find we are wrong. And then we plan for the next steps, Right. Why should learning be any different is is my question. You know, in a in a very engineering brain sort of way, in the chapter that you wrote in this book, Women in Mechanical Engineering, you created a flowchart showing your nonlinear path toward all of the cool <laughs> things that you're doing now. 
have you ever considered what your life would look like today if you had taken a more linear path? I'm a very spiritual person. And I do believe in um, in this sort of you know feeling of um, you send out wishes into the universe and it can come true. I feel in some way or the other, I might have found my way towards a path exploring the questions of the universe. Um, that's probably what I think. I may be doing this differently. I may not be at a university, for instance. I may not even be in the United States, perhaps. But I would want to believe that there would still be TV shows out there talking about science. And I might be a huge, huge Stranger Things fan, <laughs> <laughs> learning about, you know, the mysteries. And and I want to believe I will, I will still be trying to seek out questions and find answers. That's Rija Jan. She is the author of a chapter in a recently published book called Women in Mechanical Engineering, in which she shared her non-linear path toward her current role as an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. Rija Jan, thank you so much. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday on UPR and Thursdays and Sundays on KCPW. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.